KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. For the past couple of months, we've been following the work of BioAegis, a small New Jersey biotech company that's been studying a treatment that they believe could be a game changer in treating COVID-19 patients. While the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, part of the National Institutes of Health, also sees its promise and is now researching it as well. That study is being led by Dr. John Gallen. He's chief of the clinical pathophysiology section in the laboratory of clinical immunology and microbiology at the Institute. We'll talk to him first, and then we'll check in with the CEO of BioAegis. Could you start out by telling us, we're looking into the study that you've decided to do on plasma gel solin. Could you tell us first off what that is, what the plasma gel solin is? Sure. Plasma gel solin is an interesting protein that was discovered in 1979 as the most abundant protein inside cells. And it regulates another protein called actin, which is the muscle of the cells. And so when cells crawl around and do their things in the body, gel solin is a critical regulator of the state of the actin molecule so that it's working properly. And it converts the plasma, the content of the cells, from a gelatinous state to a soluble state, hence the name gel solin. And it's that change from a gelatin to soluble state that imparts the energy that enables cells to move. What happened after that discovery was that it was realized that a very similar molecule, just a little bit longer in length, is abundant in plasma and circulates in the blood. And people spent a long time trying to figure out why. What's it there for? Well, it turns out it also regulates actin that gets released from dying cells into the blood. And the actin is a potent stimulator of the immune system as well as platelets, which impacts the clotting system, causing blood clots. And gel solin is a buffer, and it buffers the actin that's released from dying cells It also buffers a number of other very important inflammatory mediators that circulate in the blood. So we think that gel solin is important in regulating the extent of inflammation that occurs in a variety of clinical settings. So that's why I got interested, because my laboratory studies inflammation in the cells that cause inflammation. So what could be the possible connection to treating COVID-19 patients? Well, COVID-19, as we're all learning as this illness becomes more well understood, causes a lot of inflammation. Some people call that a cytokine storm, which is just a fancy word for the chemicals that are released. And it also causes, uh, as we're learning, particularly in children, blood clotting, also in adults. So those are two very important clinical manifestations of COVID-19, one question is why? Why is that occurring? And two, and more importantly, how can we treat it? And so my interest in COVID-19 patients as it relates to gel solin is the possibility that maybe this is an important protein in this disease 
and it's not working properly as a result of the infection. So could you tell us about the study? What will you be doing? How will you be, how will you be conducting it? Well, what we've been doing is collecting blood from patients who have COVID-19 and looking to see what the amount of gel solid that exists in the blood to see if it's low. If it's low, as it's been defined in a number of other infections, that might give us a clue that we need to think about giving gel solid to people as a way to remedy this deficiency. And so what we've been doing is getting specimens of blood from a number of patients who have COVID-19 and looking to see what the gel solid levels are in our preliminary data. And I want to emphasize this is preliminary. It's by no means finished, is that it's very low in patients. And so that would support the idea that they would be at increased risk because they lack the buffering ability of gel solid to control um, some of the in, uh, things that induce inflammation. So you're in the preliminary stage. How much longer do you have to go before you will have definitive results here? We're hoping within a couple of weeks we, we will know for sure whether the levels are low and then we uh, will correlate those low levels with clinical outcome to see, for example, if they're more low in patients who've been on ventilators versus those who've not even gone to the hospital or not been in the intensive care unit. If there is such a correlation, then we would, we're in discussions with the company that has something called recombinant human gel solid, a company that you, is known as BioAegis, and they're considering a clinical trial, and I know they've been in discussions with the Food and Drug Administration to get permission to do such a study. You've collaborated with BioAegis for, for a little while now. You're familiar with them, obviously. What, what have you learned from that collaboration, and are you able to take their data and what they've learned and then apply it to your study, or do you need to kind of start from scratch? We start from scratch, but we've We've worked with the founder of BioEgis, Dr. Thomas Stossel, who sadly expired last fall suddenly. I have a long-standing, had a long-standing partnership with him, and we looked at some of our patients who do not have COVID-19, who have some inborn errors of metabolism or mutations of some of their cells that are important in inflammation and found that in one group of these patients in particular, their gel solid level was very low. And we're intrigued that the hyperinflammatory state in these patients might relate to the gel solid. So that's been a study that we've been doing for a number of years, totally unrelated to COVID-19, but positioned us to be ready when we started seeing the clinical manifestations of COVID-19 to not only think about looking at these patients for gel solid, but to think about the possibility that gel solid might be a therapeutic down the road that could be added to strategies for managing these patients. The interesting thing when I've, I've spoken to people with BioEgis is they started looking at this with community-acquired pneumonia. Just in pneumonia patients, you know, they would have this damage caused by this inflammation and their belief is that, you know, it could help COVID patients, but also down the road, it could be used for a variety 
of illnesses. So the applications of this could be much larger than just COVID-19. Do you see that as well? Yes, I'm fully aware of what has been published and what their thinking is about this. And it's a very, very intriguing idea. And there's very compelling data in animals, less data so far in people. But it's it's such a neat idea that I'm intrigued by it and think that we should be aggressively pursuing this from a number of angles. It's not yet reached the clinic as, as a drug. It's been too early for that, but it's an exciting idea and one worth pursuing. Do you think we can get this, though? I mean, I think there's this race for therapies, for treatments for COVID-19, obviously, as well as the race for the vaccine. Can you give us an idea on a timeline? Because these drugs take a very long time to develop and to get licensure and approval. Can you give us an idea of what we're looking at time-wise here? Well, that's a great question, and it's a very important question. Given the attention that COVID has raised, there's been a very rapid acceleration of the timeline for bringing new ideas and compelling ideas to clinical studies and trying to get those studies moving at a very rapid rate. And the Food and Drug Administration has been really marvelous, in my opinion, in responding to this pressure, as has the NIH and a number of other federal entities partnering with industry to make this all happen. So if we show convincingly that gelsalin is very low in patients with COVID-19, and if we show there's a correlation in the degree of reduction of gelsalin levels in clinical disease, then I think there's a very compelling rationale for, for moving forward with the study. So I'm optimistic that a study could be done. It's not likely to be done this month, but it might be done over the summer if, if things were to really work well and we just had enough of the material, which I understand they do, to move ahead with the clinical trial. The one thing I thought about when I was when I was reading about this was antibiotic resistance. That's been that's I mean that's a concern across the board, but that's also been a concern in treating COVID nineteen patients. Do you think something like this, a naturally occurring protein, if it could help, could help us move away from using antibiotics that are you know we are we're developing resistance to, or would this be used in conjunction with? I think if, it, if this works, it would be done in conjunction with antibiotics. One of the things that gelsalin seems to be able to do is to facilitate the activation of macrophages, which are important white blood cells, and they're very important in the lung as pulmonary alveolar macrophages. And they're the cells that eat bacteria and kill them. So if you gave gelsalin and could stimulate those cells to be more aggressive in killing bacteria, they would help antibiotics, but they would not replace it. So gelsalin should be thought of as stimulating something called innate immunity, which is the first wave of immunity to an infection uh, and is what we mean by inflammation. Do you think that if this does turn out to be an effective therapy, this could be a game changer in the fight against COVID-19? A game changer. I think it can help. I don't think it's going to be the solution by itself. I think the solutions are going to be complicated and include antiviral agents 
that directly attack the virus, as well as agents that control the inflammation that's associated with this infection. And there's probably going to be multiple different angles eventually for adequate treatment. Well, doctor, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you for the opportunity. Dr. Susan Levinson is a CEO of BioAegis Therapeutics. Dr. Levinson, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Always happy to talk about the exciting work that we're doing. What does this NIH, this latest NIH study with relation to COVID, what does that mean for you and your research? I think it has the opportunity to confirm what we expect anyway. We've seen in dozens of different diseases that gelsalin levels drop when there's inflammation, injury, infection, and it drops in proportion to how severe the disease is. So we expect, since COVID-19 is so severe, we expect to see that the patients who are most affected will have the lowest gelsalin levels. Now, we don't have those answers yet. That's what they're testing. They have to not just test the levels, but look at the profile of each patient to see if there's a correlation. We expect there will be, but out of that, we'll get a publication. We should get a lot of recognition. People will probably be interested in testing gelsalin, but what we care about most is actually using gelsalin to treat patients so that they don't end up with organ damage and, of course, death Mm -hmm. as a result of this terrible pandemic. Where are you now in your clinical trials? I know you had been trying to, you've already tested it in a small group of people. Is that correct? Yes, we tested it in 32 patients with pneumonia who were hospitalized, but that was just a safety study where we looked at how much of the gelsalin was accumulated in the blood from our treatment and looked at safety. Did the drug do anything to hurt the patients? And we saw nothing, even at the very highest doses where we brought the levels of gelsalin up very high, well above normal, there were no safety issues. Right now, we're in the process of filing regulatory documents, both in the U.S. and in Europe. And our expectation right now is that we'll be starting a phase two study in Europe this month. So what does, what does that mean? Are you, what does that phase of the study mean? So in this phase of the study, we will be enrolling COVID-19 patients with a certain level of severity. There, there are scoring systems to say that how sick a person is from only slightly sick to dead, basically. So we've selected a certain severity where we think that um, gelsalin will be most effective Um, and those patients will be enrolled in the study. Half of them will be treated with gelsalin, and half will be treated with a placebo. So this is what's known as a randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind study. So neither the patients nor the caregivers will know whether they're giving gelsalin or placebo. This is a standard way of testing a drug to get a solid answer as to how the drug is working in these, specifically in these patients. How long will that take? Well, that depends on the virus. What usually drives enrollment in a study is how many patients are available. There are a lot of areas where there are lots of patients. We think that we should be able to recruit very quickly, 
but a lot of it depends on how many patients continue to get infected by the virus and end up in these severe situations. Our investigators are very confident that they can enroll in a couple of months. There is a follow-up that we actually follow patients out to 90 days, but we'll know some of the data very quickly in a few months. And then what uh, if you are successful, what happens after that? So the next step would be to plan what's known as a phase three study. The one that I just described is a phase two study. The phase three study would be a larger study. FDA wants you to look at more patients to be more comfortable about safety. And we would do a red, what's called a registration trial. So it would be a larger trial in basically the same patient profile. We may extend depending on the timing and where the pandemic is at that point in time. We may include patients who are not COVID as well, patients who have other types of severe pneumonia. It could be from influenza, it could be bacterial pneumonia. Uh, That's to be determined and depends a lot on where the pandemic is at that point in time, whether there's a second wave or, you know, whether there are enough patients actually available with COVID-19 at that point in time. So I know you've been trying to get FDA fast track approval. So I kind of have a, a double question. The first part of it is how much quicker would that allow you to finish your studies? That's an excellent question. Um, FDA is speaking a lot about fast track. There's a rather lengthy process in terms of submitting things to FDA, as there are around the world at other regulatory authorities as well. We've done one submission that typically would take a couple of months to get an answer, and it took seven business days. We're in the process of preparing our next set of questions for FDA, which will enable us to file our IND. If they respond as quickly as the previous one, we should be able to get our IND filed this summer. That's extremely fast. In terms of actually getting to approval, they seem to be moving very quickly when they see compelling data. And that's always the case. Um, The more compelling the data that you provide to FDA, the more anxious they are to move fast and give you an answer. So it's hard to predict the future. We know they're overwhelmed with companies that are either trying to get studies started or trying to have diagnostics approved. You've probably seen a lot of that in the news because the diagnostics are faster to market, of course, than treatments. So it's a little bit hard to predict But each step of the way, the FDA seems to be committed to moving the most promising products forward. What's an IND? Ah, sorry. That's okay. An IND is something called an investigational new drug. That's the process where you submit all of your already existing data to FDA. They review everything that you have and let you know whether it's okay to move forward and do a clinical trial in the U.S. Now, we've already done trials outside the U.S., and we had not filed an IND in the U.S. because we had been studying pneumonia in the Southern Hemisphere because of timing. So now we need to file these documents with the FDA in order to be able to do a study in the U.S. doesn't preclude us from doing 
studies elsewhere in the world through different regulatory authorities. And all of that data um, will be submitted in our IND and all the work that we do is up to FDA standards. It's just been done outside the U.S. So you still go through all of the phases. It's just that you, that fast track approval would allow you to start sooner here in the U.S. What fast track approval means, and it's not even approval, it's fast track response, really. I mean, they talk about approval, but really approval is when you get market approval, at least in my mind. So you get fast responses and that's what we saw the seven day turnaround of the first response. It still takes a lot of time, just as you may have seen a lot of controversy out there, are vaccines going to be available at the end of the year? Everybody's got different opinions and whether how fast you can actually do vaccine studies. The same thing with the regulatory path. The FDA is not cutting corners nor are any of the regulatory authorities around the world. What they're doing is fast-tracking the bureaucracy. It's saying we're going to pay more attention to COVID-19 than any others. So basically, it's applying FDA resources where it's most important at this point in time because of the pandemic. So that may affect other companies that are studying diseases that are not COVID-19 or you know, are not killing people, for example. So they may get less attention because the FDA has limited resources. So they've like moved people who are not typically looking at pneumonia into reviewing documentation that's coming forward on COVID-19. So they've like turned on a dime to try and accelerate the process, but it's still a very intensive process with a lot of oversight and they're very focused on safety. So in order for us to file this investigational new drug dossier, I guess you would call it, we'll be publishing and shipping to FDA at least a thousand pages of information. Wow. Just to put it in perspective. And by the time a drug, and this is just general, not us specifically, by the time a drug gets approved, there's, you know, many, many, many thousands of pages of Um, detailed data, uh, safety information, manufacturing information, the clinical information, the statistical analysis, and they go through it with a fine-tooth comb before they agree that something is suitable to be sold in the marketplace. And that just takes a long time. I mean, drug development in general, and we're getting a little bit off the COVID-19 track, but drug development in general can take 10 to 20 years. Crazy long time. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, but it's all in the interest of providing safe therapeutics and at the same time ensuring that they're actually doing something because, you know, safe alone is not enough. You have to prove both safety and efficacy. And the, you know, FDA, especially in this time, is going to prioritize the things that are most critical to get us through this pandemic. This is part of why we think it's so important, pursuing plasma gelsolin is so important. So we know that, and I think everyone knows, that the problem with COVID-19 is not the patients who get it and recover very easily or just 
feel like they have the flu, that sort of thing. It's the patients who end up hospitalized in the ICU and on a ventilator. Those are the ones where there's, I've seen statistics saying that if you get to that point, your chances of survival are only 50%. Those are the ones that until we have a vaccine, we need something to treat them. And there's very little out there. And what's out there is only modestly effective in some patients, not all patients. This is exactly where Gelsalin has its, that's its sweet spot, is that very severely ill patient with very low Gelsalin levels. We can just supplement the levels. And based on all our animal data, over 20 different models, we expect this is going to help people get through that most severe part of the disease. The beauty of that is that the next time there's a pandemic, and there almost certainly will be, we won't have to wait until a vaccine is developed. We'll have something in our armamentarium that's able to rescue the most severely ill patients, giving us time to develop the vaccine and deal with not just this pandemic, but the next one. Because gel solid is not dependent on what the um, infection is, what the source exactly. of the infection is. Exactly. We've seen this effective in influenza. We've seen it effective in bacterial infection, both gram-positive and gram-negative. Those are terms to describe how the bacterial cells stain in a, a gram stain, but it's very, they have very different properties, and so they're seen as very different infections. So antibiotics typically are specific for either gram-positive or gram-negative and sometimes specific to a, a very specific bacteria. But gelsalin has been shown to be effective gram-positive, gram-negative, influenza, and multidrug-resistant strains. Hmm. Do you think the NIH study will help you get uh, FDA fast-track approval? I think FDA will look at this fast-track just based on our overall data, it certainly doesn't hurt to have that data from NIH, but I think it will be most effective in getting attention for our small company. So, you know, we're a very little company and actually getting visibility across different funders and different organizations is hard because the very big companies are the ones that are in the news all the time. So I think it will be very helpful to us to demonstrate the correlation of low gelsalin with severe outcomes. It won't be a surprise to us, but I think people just haven't focused in on gelsalin because of our small size and limited exposure in the marketplace. So, and we appreciate your talking about it on your station as well. Well, it's been very interesting to, I mean, I'm, I'm coming in at kind of the end of your process because I know you've been studying this, what, since like 1979? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, not us personally, well. <laughs> but the, the academic work started yeah. way back when, and we've only gotten involved um, about five, seven years ago. Okay. And most of this exciting data has actually been developed since we took over the technology. There was... In the beginning, there was no sense of this role in infection, for, not for decades. You know, people knew the protein was there, but they didn't quite understand what it was doing. And it's only 
in studies that we did with the Harvard School of Public Health with Dr. Lester Kopsik that we discovered the impact on infection and how it ties to the inflammatory process as well. So one of the most unusual things about Gelsalin is that it addresses a medical issue that no one thought you could really do, and that is that it can prevent the damage from excess inflammation without suppressing the immune system. So if you think about it, most anti-inflammatories, things like steroids that they're trying to use in covid as well as immune suppressants, which are also being studied in COVID for this inflammatory response, they all suppress the immune system, and that's how they work. And that's a good thing in the case that you're trying to control inflammation. But when you're fighting infection at the same time as controlling over-exuberant inflammation, it's really better to have something that doesn't suppress the immune system. And not only does gelsalin not suppress the immune system, we have clear data that shows it actually enhances the ability of the cells that grab and chew up bacteria to do a better job of that. Dr. Levinson, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I'm always happy to speak about this. And please feel free to give me a call again if you have more questions. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic, or if you just want to know more than what you're hearing on the news right now, if you want to go a little deeper, if you want to know how this could change your life or your routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon.